Non-vital bleaching or internal bleaching is something that you don't really learn or get to practice at dental school and something that you don't really often get to do. But when you get to do it, you get to make a huge difference to a patient's smile. But there's lots of different ways to do it. It can get very confusing. And the first time you come across a case, you end up going online and searching for all the different papers and different techniques out there and you just end up getting confused, which is why I've got this killer two-part series with Dr. AJ Ray Chowdhury, restorative consultant, where we both discuss the indications, the diagnosis. So basically it's two parts. This first part you listen to right now is going to cover his journey as a restorative consultant, the diagnoses that you can make. Like when you have a yellow tooth and you take a periapical radiograph and you observe that, hey, where's the pulp gone? There is no canal anymore. That's a calcific metamorphosis, right? That's a sclerose canal and that can be a discolored tooth. Now, how do you whiten that? And how is that different to an actual non-vital tooth where you actually drill an access cavity if there isn't one already and you whiten the tooth from within the tooth. So your diagnosis is really important. And some of the big questions that we cover are things like, do you always need to have a root canal treatment present? Does that root canal treatment need to be perfect quality even if the patient is asymptomatic. And then we go on to discuss about which barrier material. A barrier material is something that you put over the gutta perca before you put the whitening gel to whiten the tooth, right? So these are all the nitty gritty things that we build up to. And in part two next week, wow, that's really gonna go into the full protocol for non-vital or internal bleaching. Hello, Pratishwarati. I'm Jazz Galati. And those of you who are listening, I probably sound a bit different. And those of you who are watching, yeah, I look in a different place. So uh, I'm actually in between Reading, where I work and live, and West London at the moment, because my wife is heavily pregnant. Uh, and so we have a lot more family support in West London. So kind of between two places at the moment, but the show must go on, right? Protrusive must go on. Uh, and I owe you a killer episode because I've been so busy with Obab. So happy it's been launched. As you all know, it's been a really tough ride for me to actually put this occlusion course together and I had to do it now before baby number two comes but I'm just so happy I'm gonna read to you the first bit of feedback that I've got so at the end of every module we have a video like hey congrats for finishing the module what did you learn and so at the end of module one so well done to the guys who already finished module one remember this is a 30 hour course so it's pretty killer so uh, Aisha Danani thank you so much you wrote I found myself wanting to click on the next video rather than fall asleep in brackets what's happening to me and then Aisha goes on to write all the things that she learned from module one so far so that kind of feedback just mean so much and there's loads more at the end of that lesson I'm not going to bore you with so it's been such a graph been so busy doing that that it's about time I release an episode like this this is like my trump card I've just kept this episode on the DL for you because I knew that you'd be a little bit upset with me that jazz you haven't been dropping the pearls as regularly as you used to but now I'm back okay I know baby number two is coming but I've got loads of content for you and you will love this two-part series very comprehensive series with Dr. AJ Ray Chowdhury the protrusive dental pearl for this episode is very relevant for internal bleach or inside-outside bleaching or non-vital bleaching, lots of different terms for it. Uh, and the pearl is that if you ever attempt to do this treatment, I'm hoping that this by the end of the two-part series, it's going to give you lots of confidence to take on cases like this. Like I said, these cases can be extremely rewarding and they can really lift up a smile. And it's a lot more intricate and more fun than just regular whitening, right? So a lot more to it, a lot more hands-on. But when you get to do this, you have to make sure of one thing, that you clean out the entire pulp chamber. 
Now, usually it's incisors that need this kind of treatment, right? Internal bleaching. And therefore, the places where you might miss in terms of cleaning or your access cavity is the horns of an incisor. So make sure those necrotic horns are completely cleared out with ultrasonics and there's no necrotic tissue inside, which is not going to help your whitening. And also, why would you want to have necrotic tissue, right? Like you don't want that obviously in your root canal system. Now, for those of you watching, there's some images on the screen right now showing you how I've done a few cases before where when I've inherited it, the root canal was good, but the access cavity was insufficient. It was too small. So what you have to do is actually remove all the old material and really assess, have we gained full access to these pulp horns? Because remember, these people with dark incisors, black and yellow and various colors, even purple I've seen before, it's usually due to trauma at a young age, right? Maybe you know, 12, 13, that kind of stuff. And therefore, the pulp chamber of these centrals and laterals and pulp horns are very large. So it's well worth cleaning out there's no place for ninja access cavity when you're doing this kind of treatment. Ask me how I know. I've had a failure before many years ago, and that's where I learned that actually you can't do these tiny access cavities. You need to make them big enough for a reservoir for your whitening gel, and also just to make sure you remove all the necrotic material. So lots more pearls where that came from, from this episode and the next one. I hope you enjoy these two parts, a full protocol guide to non-vital bleaching. AJ and Ray Chowdhury, welcome to the Protrusional Podcast. How are you, my friend? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for the very kind invite. This is going to be a, a really huge topic because I find that internal bleaching, I don't know how you learned it, and it'd be great to hear about not only your journey into restorative dentistry and, and, and your, a little bit about your you know, career ladder and that kind of stuff, but in terms of specifically internal bleaching, how you get into it and how your GDP friends got into it because it's something that we don't really learn or do very unlikely to do at dental school um because it's more postgraduate kind of stuff and then when you get to df1 you might see someone with a dark tooth and then you ask your uh, principal or you ask your trainer how did you do this and then they have their own version that they do it and then you, you you might be brave enough to try it and that's and you try to you know search some literature so it'd be cool to learn about how you got into that and then i've got some uh, cases and failures to share and i know you do as well and we could talk about your protocol and my protocol and just dis discuss a few things uh, so it'll be great to learn from you. But first, uh, AJ, just tell me your journey into restorative dentistry. Into restorative dentistry. So... Tell us also about where you work and what kind of stuff that you do. Well, okay. I'll keep it brief. I'll, I won't go back too far. So born in India, moved to England in 1986. Couldn't speak a word of English. And, and I, I moved to Luton where it's not really necessary to speak English anyway. And then, <laughs> you know, as, you know, secondary education and went to King's College London and then kind of Came out in VT, went, it was in the Northampton scheme, which was just, you know, brilliant. And uh, probably quite important to know, I was, I was going to dental school through clearing when it, when it, I don't know if that exists anymore. And I really was not a great student. And because I think you have some student listeners possibly. And, oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So not, not a great student. And I didn't, it didn't really ignite my passion for dentistry at dental mm. school. And that's not a criticism of them. That's a criticism mm. of me. My aims were simply to not get thrown out of dental school and just have the best time <laughs> that I could and, and I achieved those but but AJ I just want to mention on that I've spoken to so many guests and they all say the same thing that it's not so much what you do during your time at dental school it's more about after dental school where really your sort of career, career trajectory can, can get some sort of direction would you would you agree with that uh, absolutely 100% I guess I, I'm quite removed from undergraduate education now but the skills I the things I needed to do to get into dental school and not get thrown out of dental school were completely different to the skills that I think you need to be a good dentist. It, not well, yeah, not completely diametrically opposite, but many of those skills are, you know, not necessary. I don't remember much of the things I was taught as an undergraduate, 
and nor do I need to. But yet I've got some, we've all got some other skills, you know, based in communication and emotional intelligence, which we now, we trade on far more than our ability to remember or not remember the Krebs cycle. Very true. And then so what lured you into the restorative pathway? Because you are, uh, are you a restorative registrar or consultant now? Uh, so no, I know I'm a consultant in restorative dentistry. So I'm, I'm the head of uh, restorative dentistry at Brighton. Yeah, and I've been there since 2014. Awesome. And uh, what? how did you know that restorative was your calling? Because it can be a not only very competitive to get into restorative training, it could be a, a grueling process while your friends were in practice, uh, you know, do, doing you know that kind of lifestyle. And then you had to sacrifice some of your best years, young family, because then you got three kids and stuff. And you were this perpetual student, if you like. How did you find that? Well, that's one of the things that drew me to it. I thought, you know, I'm, uh, I was determined not to get a proper job. So I thought, let me go and, you know, do some postgraduate education. But that, but that kink in the journey was quite important. I had absolutely no aspirations of doing anything like that. And like a lot of people, these things came by chance. You know, you could, you could tell the story differently. But the truth is, our decisions are half chance. So I did VT and I worked as a general dentist. I went as into work, working as an associate. Uh, I used to work in BMW in uh, in Cowley, so where the minis are made. So that was my that was my job, and this takes us up to kind of two thousand and five, and that that's critical because you may well you may not you won't recall, but you may know that the UDA system came in about two thousand and six. So it was advised to me, and I think it was good advice to say, look, AJ, you're not going to make any money doing in this UDA system. You you're too slow. You talk too much. Why don't you go and you know do something else for a little <laughs> bit, and then come back and work in, in primary care and that and that was advice given to me by people who knew me very well and with very good intentions so I thought let me go and hide in hospital for a bit for a year basically uh, and I'll come back when this whole UDA business settles down and many many years later you know it hasn't really settled down I've still never earned a UDA I still don't really understand what it means unfortunately but so so I did a max fax SHO job then of course and then, then I did kind of MFTS as it was called then and Suddenly realised why. But did you know when when you did your max fact? Did you know that you wanted to go into restorative at that point, or this is just something you took one year at a time? Just wanted to wait for this UDA system to settle down, so I could go back to primary care and be a proper dentist. And but then I loved <laughs> max facts, but then I thought I'm not going to be a max facts consultant. That's not for me. So then I did a couple of years of SHO in restorative in Birmingham, where I met some absolutely fantastic people, people who I'm still very very good friends with. That's the first time I really came across a restorative dentist, a restorative consultant, and they were just cool and they could do loads of stuff that I thought didn't didn't exist. And I, and that's when I thought, and I went in at kind of 26 and I came out at 28 as an SHO. And and by that time, in that transition, I thought this is this that's kind of that's what's my calling. I really want to do that. But it was it was very competitive then. I think it's even more competitive now, if I'm being honest. So I didn't really I wasn't really sure I was going to get in and. I was already dabbling in a few other things, my master's at that time, but that was non-clinical, it was in medical law. So I, I felt a bit behind the curve, but next thing you know, I've got a registrar job at King's uh, with some amazing, amazing consultants uh, who are mm -hmm. still very, well, now friends of mine and are still amazing consultants. So that's how I got in. And you know, mm -hmm. and what's your split like now in terms of how many days in hospital doing the? I mean, do you, are you doing the cancer kind of stuff, trauma? Uh, to tell me a bit about that, and then the rest of the week uh, private practice. But you know, what's your split like? So I, I, you know, head and neck cancer was my was the big thing that I did up until very recently. So my primary job in Brighton was to sit on the head and neck cancer MDT, 
and be the only restorative consultant there to do oral rehabilitation. So obturators and implants and that kind of stuff. But, you know, COVID changed lots, you know, children changes lots. So now I, I work one day a week as a consultant and I spend four days a week in, in private practice where I, I work as an associate one day a week and the rest of the time I'm in my own practice, uh, my own referral practice in Hassocks, which I co-own with my wife, Emma. Awesome. And uh, AJ, I mean, just your story. I mean, I, unlike you, uh, when I qualified, I really wanted to be a restorative consultant. I really wanted to, to follow that pathway. That's why I specifically did uh, DCT1, DCT2, both in restorative. But when I did them, I realized that the training pathway wasn't for me. For me, hospital was very slow pace and stuff, but I, I knew that I wanted to upskill. So I went about the other way. I just did lots and lots and lots of courses. And now I'm, I'm in practice. I'm, I'm happy. I'm getting, I'm getting to practice the kind of dentistry I wanted to practice, minus the head and neck cancer stuff, I guess. So I, I got the, the fun bits and stuff. And I guess at the time, it was very attractive to be a specialist in you know this is way before they made you choose like a monospec before it was like you're a specialist in perio you're a specialist endo you're a specialist in a prosto like you're like you like this hot shot right and i was like wow i want to be this awesome dentist and whatnot but then just the way i experienced training i thought okay this is not the most effective learning for me and that's why i, I went the way uh, i did uh, and it's great to hear that you're you know very wet fingered very much a, a restorative practitioner uh, and so that goes in very handy with the topic we're discussing today uh, of internal bleaching so, so thanks very much for that intro. So let's let's dive in straight away. This is the kind of stuff, as I was telling you uh, before I hit the record button, that when you come across it, you don't really learn it in dental school. And when you see your first case of someone with a black tooth or, or a yellow tooth, and you think, hang on a minute, I, I think we can whiten these, but I don't know how to whiten something from inside. And they end up speaking your trainer or your principal, and then they give you their version, and then you end up looking at a few papers, and you get confused. Wait, there's a lot of different ways to do it. And then you get worried about internal resorption and relapse and stuff. So why don't we all bring it together and talk about your protocol? Then I'll share with you my protocol, because I, I, I think I know which protocol you like to use. And tell me, do you ever switch protocols as well? So we'll, we'll get into that. But what is your standard protocol? But maybe even before then, I think I'm, I'm, I'm jumping the gun here, is... Just describe the process and, and when it is an appropriate option to go for internal bleaching, just for students who might be listening. Okay, sure. So, yeah, absolutely. I, this didn't exist. This wasn't on my radar until it became registrar, actually. So I, I'm not surprised some people haven't come across it. So as part of this process, I, I see there's three people involved, I think. So there's me as the dentist, there's the patient, and there's a lab technician. And if, if we bring our A game, we're going to be fine. And if one of us drops the ball, this is not going to work. So my, part of my job is diagnosis. So I've got to work out this let's say single discolored tooth is it because it, there's extrinsic staining is it because there's intrinsic staining or is it because there's internalized staining um, most people kind of split things up into extrinsic so stuff on the outside in which case they need maybe a good scale and polish or something like that or drink less tea and there's no place for inside outside whitening or is it that there is an internal issue an intrinsic issue and if it's an intrinsic issue is it a systemic issue or, for example, a metabolic issue where they've got like, liver disorders or kidney disorders? But generally that tends not to present as a single discolored tooth. Or is it something that something that we have done? For example, it's if fundamentally it's a dead tooth, which is not root filled, or it is a dead tooth, which is root filled. And that's kind of, I think, the focus of our conversation today, that that single tooth, which is discolored. I mean, let's go with that specifically, that, that one tooth with the black or the, the dark yellow tooth. And then let's assume that 
they come to you for the first time and you find that, oh, it's, it's non-vital. It hasn't got an access cavity. So you find that, okay, it hasn't been root filled. And then the first step is take a PA. And then I guess you've got to you know, put your endodontist hat on and make a diagnosis and yeah. think, okay, do, do you know we need to obviously do a, well, I say obviously, but there might be scenarios where you may not need to do a root canal treatment. Now, specifically what I'm thinking of is that scenario where it's calcific metamorphosis, right? Where sure. the, the pulp is completely obliterated yeah. and therefore the, the tooth has a, a yellowish appearance in that scenario obviously to do a root canal there's no canal to, to obturate so in those scenarios uh, is it safe to just go ahead and whiten so here's a good question so so the, i'm glad you talked about that because i think that's one of the things that is one of the subtle but important academic points that could really get people in trouble in the uk and that is fundamentally does that tooth need root filling or not and so this and and how do you make that decision so in the scenario I'll just, you've described there in my opinion in my very strong opinion actually one of those teeth does not need a root filling and should not be root filled and the other one does. So how do we discriminate? So if we go back to diagnosis, I kind of split up my endodontic diagnosis. Now this is with my specialist endo hat on, you're right. I split up my diagnosis into two parts. I've got a pulpal diagnosis and I've got an apical diagnosis. So let's say a patient comes in with a history of trauma to a tooth. Classically, for example, if you're in middle-class sort of Sussex, they were standing in slip, they missed a catch, they took a whack 20 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and the tooth has started to get a bit darker, right? Maybe they get some odd pain, maybe they don't. Then someone does vitality testing on them. The primary care practitioner rightly does the things, does vitality testing on them, and it's negative, right? So what does that mean? So you put that information together just from a history point of view, and that would be pretty much all of the discriminators you need to say this is a dead tooth, right? But you take a radiograph, and what you see is, let's say, calcific metamorphosis, sclerosis, whatever you want to call it. This episode is brought to you by Enlightened Smiles. They have recently launched their Evo 4 protocol. So usually now for teeth whitening, it's three weeks of treatment and there's no longer an in-office stage. Their trays are awesome. The gel is always fresh. So if you're in a country that offers enlightened whitening, do check it out. Now, if you want to learn more about whitening techniques, then the best thing to do is join some free online training. If you head over to protrusive.co.uk forward slash enlighten, you can check out Payman Nangrudi and all his pearls about teeth whitening. So it's well worth a shout if you're learning more about teeth whitening. So once again, that's protrusive.co.uk forward slash enlighten. Let's get back to the episode. So just as for students, you know, you take this radiograph and you do not see uh, a pulp. You don't see that radiolucent line going across. It's all dentine. Right. So that to me means that tooth is or certainly was for a very long time vital because you can't create the secondary and tertiary dentine in a non-vital tooth. Right. So does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So actually what you're almost mm-hmm. certainly looking at is a vital tooth or certainly a tooth which is vital yeah. for some time. That tooth will still give a negative response to cold thermal testing. So I use something like endofrost, which is like minus 45, minus 50 degrees. And it does give a negative response often to electric pulp testing. So can you see, you can, that's a very confusing picture. But diagnostically, that is not a necrotic pulp. And di- mm-hmm. so if you talk about the, the pulpal diagnosis, that's not necrotic. Apical diagnosis, you're not going to have an apical area. So it's a healthy periapex. So diagnostically, what are you telling me? You've got a healthy pulp and you've got a healthy periapex no root filling. And I do, let's say once a year, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less, get referred or at least ask an opinion on it. Say, AJ, how am I going to root fill this tooth? Because the tooth patient wants tooth whitening. And the first thing, that's one of the things I drop, I drop what I'm doing. So <laughs> don't take a bird to this tooth. This tooth does not need a root filling unless proven otherwise. Well, the final question is how many of those teeth go on to develop necrosis and actually then become non-vital because they cause strangulation of the pulp and things like that. The data mm-hmm. is, there's a paucity of data on that. 
but actually the vast minority of those teeth ever go on to need a root filling. Depending on <laughs> Andreessen's old data, it was less than 10%. Some of the more modern data will say maybe it's up to 25%. But the standard answer is less 10% or less will go on to ever need a root filling. So something you could you should warn warn the patient, but in this case you don't need to do a, a root filling. Obviously you'd struggle very much even if you tried. Uh, <laughs> then, then you go off and then you then you do all these other bits, and then you actually you, you really end up in the chocolate, don't you? Because then someone rightly after the event going, yes, you went of course, but this is not a tooth that needs a root filling. Because what's the diagnosis, doc? The diagnosis is. Mm-hmm healthy periapex yeah yeah and so in that scenario just um our normal whitening protocols would you say or would you say that uh, to have a special type of tray whereby the adjacent tooth let's say it's an upper left one or upper left central incisor yeah. the adjacent teeth the upper right central and the upper left lateral are cut out from the tray and they're just whitening that one tooth only would yeah. you adopt that protocol or just go normally no, so a normal whitening tray will not work. What you described there is, I have a modification of that, but yes, fundamentally, so what I do is I make a normal tray, let's say it's upper left central incisor, which I want to do. We call that the target tooth. Then I'm going to cut out windows in three of the adjacent teeth, either side of them, because if you don't, the patient will whiten the other teeth, accidentally or on purpose, they'll whiten the other teeth. So you wanted targeted tooth whitening on that one tooth, but be in no doubt, that is a much slower and less predictable protocol than when you root fill the tooth yeah mm-hmm. and some and these are the patients that sometimes do need some top-up treatment but what in my opinion mm-hmm. what you mustn't do is then go immediately to a veneer because if you think about it you're taking off the the translucent white enamel and you're going back down to the further bulk of dentine which has got primary secondary and tertiary dentine so actually the first thing you do is make the tooth darker mm-hmm. yeah and, and in those cases i guess you know, every case is different. And I, I would say from, from experience that if you have such a tooth, which is a, a bit yellower because it's, it's corrosed yeah. and you are thinking that, OK, it's going to be a very slow process, teeth whitening and the patient's after a quicker result. If that tooth is now slightly in standing and you can get away without prepping, then just go for a minimal prep, no prep veneer or composite veneer or something to rather than doing the dance of the whitening and then also then going into relapse territory in the future. Uh, what do you think about that kind of approach? I mean, if you're in the, so a long time ago, I wrote a paper on the class two div two patient with Martin Keller and Richard Porter. And that's one of the things we talk about. I said, actually, if you've got a retroclined tooth, if it's a purely additive approach, fantastic. I probably would still favor direct dentistry because I do. But on that patient, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to mock it up chair side and I'll probably try on the first appointment to mock it up with because the shade of composite may need to be more opaque than you would normally expect so in in the gradia mm-hmm. system you might need to go for a, like an a02 an a opaque mm-hmm. two rather than an a2 but if you can do that without the whitening bit that that makes perfect sense and of course it's instant orthodontics in in in, in you know not not in the old classic way of dr- drilling away all the crowning to little little pegs but in, in a way that's purely additive yeah yeah and and and, and, I, and i'm very comfortable with that approach yeah additive approach yeah absolutely I mean, you, but even with that if you think about it that's a that's a great quick fix and it may be cost effective but that needs to be maintained you, you there is no dentistry that you and i jazz will that will do will last forever you know unless unless it's the patient who expires you know on the patients that we do who are living longer and longer they have to factor in a maintenance cycle and f- let's say for a composite that's going to include repolishing and replenishing and eventually replacement at the patient's cost mm-hmm. not at ours well let's dive into the same tooth upper left central incisor this time it's a black tooth it's that patient who's been walking around with a black tooth i've got lots of uh, good cases I've, I've actually done the past some good success rates uh, with this type of patient let's assume they have a successful root filling 
healthy periapical structures now because of this successful root filling. Obviously, if you've got disease, then yeah. it, you know, it goes without saying, treat the disease first, okay. send it to your endodontist, get the re-RCT done, and then wait for that to heal. Now, any guidelines in terms of how long we should wait? That, that'd be a good question to ask in terms of, you know, you're waiting for post-endodontic. When is there, a, is there a time that you have to wait before starting whitening? In my opinion, well... No, I don't. I, I If I'm redoing that endo, which I do myself, then my plan is on that appointment where I obturate, I'm starting. The, so this is, we're talking about inside-outside whitening. I'll be starting that obturation on that appointment. But perhaps we take a step back and say, because we, we've kind of talked about the spectrum of endodontics, and you're talking about, let's say, a symptomatic tooth or with a poor root filling. And, and uh, there won't be much controversy by saying that needs endodontic revision. That's fine. Mm-hmm. And even, did you say symptomatic or asymptomatic? Sorry. So a symptomatic tooth. There's not going to be anything. But, but now here's the tricky bit. What if the patient, because the vast majority of the failures that I see and the failures that I've had in the past is actually not of the three people involved. It's not the dental technician. It's not the patient. The person who's got it wrong or dropped the ball is me. And it's at the mm-hmm. diagnostic phase because this patient may have a reasonable root filling, which has served them well. But the root filling is often part of the problem. So have they got a reasonable root filling? Yes, but I don't need them to have root filling. That, that, a reasonable root filling to me, I'm afraid, is not acceptable under, for this particular circumstances. They need to have an excellent root filling. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you a little bit about when I look at, I'm, I, as you may or may not know, I'm not a much of a consumer of social media and I certainly don't, I don't put much on there. But I do look at other people, and, but my job isn't to take pot shots at them. But if you look at things when people put up root fillings, everyone is obsessed with the apical third lovely ramifications i've got a sealer spur it's on purpose it's not okay fine i'm always looking at the other end of the radiograph i'm always looking at the coronal Mm -hmm. bit because Mm -hmm. we know that coronal seal is as important some of the data tells us more important let's say you know let's forget the ray and trope studies and things like that but let's say it's just as important okay but in the aesthetic zone not only can it it can't just be enough to seal it that gutta perca has to be sealed miles above where people think they are and the first thing that I look at these root fillings in outside of the aesthetic zone, I can see gutta perca into the pulp chamber of a molar tooth. That is compromising mm-hmm. the seal, right? Mm-hmm. But if you put a crown on top of it, you'll probably get away with it. And if it does become dark underneath, you can't tell. You cannot get away with that in the aesthetic zone. So I'm really asking myself the question, is this tooth, which is has a reasonable root filling and is asymptomatic, does that need endodontic revision? And almost always, for me and my patients, the answer is yes. And yeah. not only do I have, I think the periapical is a minimum standard that you need. I almost all, if it's, if it's de novo endodontics, periapical is fine. But if it's not de novo endodontics, if it's endodontic revision, then I will have a, a cone beam CT, a small field of view cone beam CT scan. And I pick up far more pathology than you would think. Let me ask you the question, Jazz. Why is this patient got a single discolored tooth? Mm-hmm. It's almost always yeah. trauma, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you'd be amazed how many undisplaced root fractures that I see on that tooth wow. or the adjacent teeth. Or some resorption. Now, it might be surface resorption. Mm-hmm. It might be replacement resorption on the platal aspect of this tooth, right? It, them, I've seen a few times when they've had re- really decent palatal resorption on these teeth. Now, this tooth, no matter how much I change the color of it, actually isn't going to last this patient's lifetime. It might not last that long at all. So really, then, what I'm saying, this patient needs to spend a significant amount of their resources making a tooth pretty, accepting that this is a short to medium term option because I cannot stop that replacement root resorption if it's progressing. So can you see diagnostically, I think actually, even as dentists, we focus on the outcome, which is a nice white tooth, which looks like the one next door. But I think that's the wrong question. My, I've dropped the ball if I haven't done a proper endodontic diagnosis and my root mm-hmm. filling needs to be of a very high standard 
and it needs to be and this is where there'll be many people who disagree and that's cool and if you're any if you're a student please don't quote this because for an undergraduate level exam this is definitely wrong you need to be minimum three millimeters below the cej or the gingival margin whichever is higher and for my patients it's often four millimeters or more than that right now if you just do the maths here let's say an upper central incisor how long are you going to call an upper central incisor top to bottom what, what would you say 22 perfect 22 mils right so how big is my root filling six seven eight millimeters long mm. hardly anything mm. actually if you think about it you'd look at my root fillings and think he's he's well short of the cej and the reason is you know the maths 22 millimeters right that's the entire length of the tooth now do you, do you want to fill to the radiographic apex or do you not jazz uh, me personally, gosh, uh, you probably don't want to because the anatomical apex is before absolutely, the radiographic apex. Absolutely right. Yeah, because the data tells us, if you look at the, lots of the data, including the Mizutani study from 1992, the radiographic apex is not coincident with the apical terminus, right? So so your actual root filling is probably going to be, let's say, what, 21 mil from the edge of the tooth, right? Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Okay. How long's the actual tooth? How long's an upper central incisor? 10, 11 millimeters, right? So now off the 22 millimetres, you've taken one off the top, that leaves 21 millimetres. Mm-hmm. You've taken 10 off the bottom, that it leaves 11 millimetres, right? Mm-hmm. And I want my root yep. filling to be four millimetres short of that CEJ. So that leaves a seven millimetre root filling. Yeah. Seven millimetres of gutta percha. Of gutta percha. Now, okay, now that for me is very easy because I use a warm vertical compaction technique and then I backfill. If you're actually using a lateral condensation technique, which the majority of our colleagues are, or you're using a single cone with a bioceramic sealer, actually, that's quite a lot of effort. And it's, it's kind of, I think as Sir Alex Ferguson would say, squeaky bum time, right? When you're trying to now, with a gates burr, trying to go back through and cut out the vast majority of this Mohican of gutta perca that you've got. But if that bit is not done correctly, inside-outside whitening, as I would describe it, is not a predictable process. But people jump ahead of that bit too much, you see, because without that bit, the primary curvature of the tubules, I'm sure you may remember that. I just about remember that. The dental students will remember that. The primary curvature of the tubules means that they can't, there's a sinusoidal process, which means that the tubules actually are three millimeters above the CEJ, right? So any discoloration you get of your endodontic gutta perca or the sealer, three or four millimeters above the CEJ will eventually present as late color changes at the neck of the tooth. Mm-hmm. And you have to leave room for the, GP, uh, the GIC plug if you place one. That's exactly what I was coming to. So the, the relevance here for those uh, you know young dentists who may be uh, unfamiliar with this is that you want to leave that three to four millimeters of space below the gingival margin of CEJ because if you don't and you if you finish at the CEJ, the neck of the tooth will still remain dark, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Or it will you know it will get whiter and then it will slowly darken again. Yeah. And so uh, let's talk about, uh, because this is a pain point for dentists in terms of the technique involved. Now, you're probably using a scope. You've got a lot of experience in this. It it, it, it can be quite tough to do to to get right in in this. So some of the best results I've actually had have have been from the endodontist, uh, Cesar Munoz, who used to work with Richmond. He'd uh, do it under scope and he'd, he'd make this lovely seal for me perfect position three millimeters below including after the gic uh, seal there and he'd send it back to me and i just have the easiest job ever and i get really great results because the seal was fantastic uh, but in the times in the past you know i remember six seven years ago doing something like this and he you know with gic without a microscope it can get very messy and then if you get some up on the sort of the the, the outer wall then obviously you're compromising your peroxide actually uh, penetrating into those tubules. So any tips and advice you can give to the humble GDP trying to do this in practice? (laughs) 
for the humble GDP who does the vast majority of the dentistry in the, in the UK. Okay, guys, I've done it again. I've left you on a cliffhanger. So in part two, make sure you tune in to find out what is Dr. AJ's preferred barrier material. It actually might surprise you. So definitely tune in for that. Hope you enjoyed this introductory episode so far. And episode two is going to have so much meat that we're going to make a famous protrusive infographic with step-by-step with all the information from this one and the next one. But the next one really is the meat and potatoes of it all. If you've listened or watched this far and you're a protrusive premium member, you're in luck. You get your full listening and watching time allocated as CE or CPD certificate. You just have to answer a few questions as you scroll down on the app and as you know protrusive premium i'm adding premium content as i go along i really appreciate you watching or listening all the way to the end and i catch you in that killer next episode you will absolutely love it